Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. Welcome, everybody. We have a special guest today who is a person of faith and an expert on fusion, which is a political term. It basically means that the, it's the post-World War II political alignment between conservatives and libertarians. And fusion seems to be in decline. There are conservatives who say libertarianism is the enemy, the source of all of our ills. Indeed, this post-war consensus about what it means to be on the left and right seems to have changed. And we want to talk about all that today with our guest, Stephanie Slade. But first, let me bring Jim in. Jim, personal faith is always on our minds here, right? But you're hoping Stephanie has some insight on one of your projects. That's correct. Um, I, I wear a variety of hats, and one of them happens to be with the Advocates for Self-Government, who is famous for the world's smallest political quiz, which was uh, birthed in a idea that David Nolan had. David Nolan was famous for two things, his chart, the Nolan chart, yeah. uh, which I hope to discuss here today, and uh, the founding of the Libertarian Party. He was It was in his living room that the party was started. Uh, and these two innovations happened very quickly. They're back-to-back type of innovations. The chart ended up becoming a variety of different political quizzes that exist uh, all over the web now, uh, the most famous of which is the world's smallest political quiz that's put out by the Advocates for Self-Government. And as we're looking at the quiz... There was a, a philosophy, a theory that, that David Nolan posited uh, that seemed to hold until uh, the late teens. Uh, but I have reason to believe that things have changed pretty significantly. And so I'm also hoping that before we're done today, we're able to tap into Stephanie's expertise on fusionism and the realignments that are going on on, on both sides of the aisle. You know, that quiz is why I'm a libertarian. Yes. Although I may not be a libertarian anymore, but <laughs> that's the thing that got me in. And it, it was brilliant. Yeah back in its day. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but first, uh, let's do a proper intro for Stephanie. Remember episode 19? We wanted to talk about an article that she wrote. We're going to talk about that today. And uh, we went ahead and did the show anyhow, which is called, are you ready for this? I'll try to say it all correctly. Authoritarianism, Polarization, and Illiberalism. That was the name of our episode. Right. Say that with a mouthful of mar marbles. So Stephanie, <laughs> Stephanie Slade, Senior Editor at Reason, the magazine of free minds and free markets, a fellow in liberal studies at the Acton Institute, and a media fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. Her writings appeared in America Magazine, the New York Times, US News and World Report, Online Library of Liberty, and probably a ton of other places. She covers the intersection of religion and politics. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Stephanie, um... As Bill said, we wanted to get you on in late 22. Um, you you write these these epic articles, and you just recently did another one. Uh, Can free markets win votes in the new GOP? We'll put uh, the article that inspired that episode, which was called "The Authoritarian Convergence," and "Can Free War Markets Win Votes in the New GOP," uh, in the show notes. 
Um, but <clears throat> I, 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 before we get too deeply into the subject of, of the politics and the alignment, I'd like to talk about faith because that's always on our mind here. We, we care a lot about that issue. The show is called Grace Archie. And uh, we approach it maybe a little different from you, but I I, uh, I would like to get your take on on uh, on on your faith. Uh, uh, it obviously inspires part of, of what you do. So uh, give us kind of your spiritual biography, as it were. Sure. Um, so I am, I guess, somewhat famously at this point, a Catholic libertarian. I was for a while. I've been at Reason Magazine, where I work now for almost ten years, and for a while I used to identify myself as the resident or the token Catholic or even Christian or even believer at Reason Magazine. It's actually not true anymore. We now actually have a whole bunch of people who work for the magazine who are people of faith, of various um, faith backgrounds. So I'm not alone anymore. Um, but I am Catholic. I am libertarian. I am pro-life. Um, and this was ten years ago. I think considered to be kind of a strange. Um, mix of, of attributes. I have been um, Christian. I have been Catholic my whole life. I, I was raised Catholic. So that came first for me. My politics were secondary. Um, some people, you know, do that journey backwards, uh, the other the other direction. Um, but so for me, I think it's important to recognize that my libertarianism flowed out of my religious commitments and my, my beliefs um, and my moral, my moral commitments and beliefs, um, as opposed to sort, sort of being in some, in some way like retconned after the fact or something. So I believe very deeply in human dignity, that you know every human being was created in the image of God um, and that we were endowed with free will by God and that we therefore have obligations, moral obligations to each other. Um, and that one of those obligations is not to you know, needlessly coerce each other. And so I think that my, my libertarian views really did come out of my, my faith commitments first. Uh, so you actually kind of anticipated one of the questions I wanted to ask you. You started to even answer it. And I'm, I'm kind of interested because I remember reason back in the Virginia postural days, and she uh, wrote a book mm -hmm. that basically uh, uh, introduced a theory or philosophy called dynamism, right? Which tied libertarian thinking or thought to the idea of prog human progress and, and, and being very future oriented. And it was kind of a, a humanist view of the world. And I know that, you know, I, I listen to Nick when he does, Nick Gillespie, when he does a podcast, a friend of mine, and I, I enjoy his, uh, his show um, and his sense of humor, but his aesthetic is very clearly kind of a rock and roll uh, aesthetic and, and uh, clearly not one of faith. I'm, I'm interested in a little bit more in the dynamic that goes on at Reason because it, it has kind of had more of a, uh, maybe a pop culture bend even in terms of how it, it approaches things, at least from my perspective. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about how the interaction of faith happens at Reason. Sure. Yeah, we, we joke sometimes that when Nick was editor-in-chief, we had a sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll aesthetic. And then when my current boss, editor-in-chief, Catherine Maggie Ward, took over, she's a little more sex, drugs, and robots. She's more of a tech, a tech <laughs> optimist, right? Um, and in fact, we made t-shirts up that said sex, drugs, and robots for when she took over as editor-in-chief. Um, both of those are a little bit different, although I, I appreciate very much getting to sort of share a platform with Nick and with Catherine and with, with all my other colleagues who have slightly different perspectives or have came to libertarianism from different places. Um, but and, and I'll say too, I did not know when I was getting ready. I remember the day before I started my job at Reason almost 10 years ago, thinking like, goodness gracious, I do not know what I have gotten myself into. And I do not know if this is going to work. I don't know if I'm going to be accepted by my new colleagues or if they're going to be like, who is this church going Catholic girl, right? Like she doesn't belong here. I just didn't know. Um, what I found though, was that it was never, ever an issue. I, the, I was accepted immediately that this sort of 
libertarian ethos of toleration is so deeply embedded and so genuine at a place like reason that they were like, you know, listen, okay, your my, my lifestyle choices may be polyamory. Your lifestyle choices may be, you know, Bible study on Tuesday nights. That's cool. We can coexist. It's fine. We can all be friends and we can advocate for the things where we do have a sort of shared goals and commitments, namely when it comes to public policy and, you know, wanting a minimal government, um, and, uh, you know, maximizing human freedom when it comes to, um, you know, from government coercion. So there was a lot of, there's enough overlap. And there was that, again, that ethos of toleration that came together that has made it that it's been a, a really wonderful, I, I feel very at home at reason. I've never, um, and if anything, my colleagues, both Nick and Catherine, who again, neither is a person of faith, um, pushed me and encouraged me and even to go further than I might've otherwise been comfortable doing, writing about my religion, writing about being pro-life from a first-person perspective. So they, they've they been very supportive. I'm very lucky. I don't know Catherine personally, but I do know Nick, uh, and uh, he is very much that guy. Like, that's just who he is, and it comes through that he's he would... I'm not surprised at all to hear that he's been encouraging uh, to you. So let's talk about faith then as it relates to, to politics, because, uh, you know, I, I was raised in more of an evangelical tradition. I am now what I call a dun, uh, meaning... I, I still love Jesus. I still, in fact, I, he's more important to me now than maybe he's ever been in my life. And I think I, uh, but going to church is not something I'm doing at the moment. I call myself a done, as in done with church. Um, we discuss questions like the ones I'm about to ask you just uh, now. I want to know what your thoughts on the state's role in inculcating virtue. Yeah. So this gets to the idea of fusionism. Um, which was this, this, this philosophy in the 20th century that was associated with National Review magazine and the conservative movement, but I think is very relevant to many libertarians also. Um, fusionism said that liberty and virtue are both non-negotiable, that America was founded on the confluence of these two things, that they need each other, that they're mutually reinforcing, and that we can't be defenders of only one or the other, liberty or virtue. So you can't be, I mean, this, this is the idea of fusionism. You can't just be a libertarian who doesn't ever care about um, how do we inculcate virtue? How do we pass along good virtues? How do we build a virtuous society? If you want the society to remain free, it has to be virtuous also. And likewise, you can't just be a sort of religious traditionalist who says virtue above all else, even if it comes at the point of a gun. But that's not that's not going to work. So we have to care about both. And the the sort of traditional fusionist answer to this is to say, well, we need to think about our society in terms of different spheres, a governmental sphere and a non-governmental sphere. And the government's job is to protect our liberty, to keep us safe and secure, make sure our rights are, are not violated. Um, and then in the non-governmental sphere, our job is to take that liberty and use it to pursue virtue. And so we should be looking always for non-coercive, non-state ways of advancing that cause, of pursuing virtue in our individual lives, of figuring out how to inculcate virtue in the next generation, of thinking about what is a good society and how do we how do we um, cultivate a sort of culture of in, in which you know people think about the higher things in life and are not just narrowly self-interested. That that should all be done, but that it should be done through the not in the non-governmental sphere, not in the governmental sphere. So, to the greatest extent possible, the answer to the question, you know, what is the state's role when it comes to um, inculcating virtue or enforcing virtue, is I think it shouldn't have one. To the greatest extent possible, the state's job is to protect our rights. And our job is to figure out how to do the virtue piece. And, and 
and that's a really big and difficult task. But it's also, I think, a mistake to think that the only way to get things done is, is through state coercion. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to follow up on that on the flip side of it. So that has to do with the kind of the virtue side, which the right tends to be a bit more concerned about. But the there is a, a, a rich tradition within the Catholic Church, even here in the United States, uh, to focus on social welfare programs. And a lot of people turn politically left when when that comes up. Uh, is it is it the case that the state is the only institution big enough to really provide for social welfare? Is that the best way to get it done? I definitely think it's not. And in fact, um, I, I understand that impulse. I do. There is this there is this sort of seeming logic um, to saying like, well, we don't want to see people fall through the cracks. There are people in need. We have moral obligations to help those people in need. So we need to have some sort of, you know, entity that sort of overarches all of society that can make sure that there is not some corner, some pocket of society where people are falling through the cracks. And they're being left behind, and they're and they're um, not getting the help that they need. Where we, where we are failing in our our moral obligation to assist these least of our brothers, right? Um, and so the state is the thing that is above all of us. It's the one institution that you know we all are in some sense um, have some participation in. This is the idea, um, and it has the resources that no one individual person and very few private institutions could ever hope to have. And so it should be the state's job to help people. We should, we should, what, what I would say is what we, what we've learned to do is to offload our obligations onto the state. Um, and that that is bad for a few, a few different reasons. One of which is that it actually trains us to forget that we, that is ultimately our job, that it is our obligation, that we mm -hmm. should be on the front lines. We are supposed to be on the front lines of trying to figure out how to make help those around us and make our communities better. But we think, well, I pay my taxes and there's no way that I could ever do a better job than this behemoth, incredibly you know, um, financially endowed institution, the Leviathan of government. And so why would I even try to compete with them? I pay my taxes, I'm doing my part. The experts in Washington are figuring out how to help people. If people aren't getting helped, um, it's, the, it's, their, it's their job to, to solve that problem, not my job. So it, it trains us, I think, to be less moral, less virtuous, to think of ourselves as not being on the front lines. So in that sense, I think it makes us less virtuous. And then also, I think it's just that we found that government is really, in fact, bad at accomplishing the things that it sets out to do. And I mean, the one thing that government can do is write checks to people. So in that sense, like it can make sure that people aren't starving on the streets for the most part. But what we have found, I think what we have seen, this is just like, it's crazy to me that anybody doesn't see this, you know, can look at the last hundred years of US history and not conclude that, in fact, what happens is the state traps people in poverty. It takes yes. away their agency, right? It makes them, it makes them unable to real, it makes them forget or trains them to believe that it's not their responsibility to figure out how to help themselves and their families, but rather the state's responsibility to take care of them. So it's it's bad for us, those of us who are supposed to be helping those in need, and it's bad for the people who are the recipients of that help who are actually in many cases being made, you know, the, the acute urgent need of, of having food to eat today is, is important and, and the state can maybe do that. But in the long run, we're making the problem of poverty and we're making these problems, I think, worse. We, we are not at all treating the underlying like roots of this problem. And in many cases, I think we're dramatically exacerbating them. So you and I met at uh, the Acton Institute. They do an event every summer and you were a speaker there uh, and did a great talk on what were the area we're going to be going into in just a moment on fusionism. But uh, they there's some discussion there of something called sphere sovereignty, 
that goes on there. It's maybe more of a uh, slightly more Protestant idea, but I think it fits very neatly in with Catholic theory. But there is a specific Catholic theory as well on how social change or social problems should be addressed called subsidiarity. Would you like to address one or both of these ideas too? Sure. I, I definitely am more familiar with the, the Catholic one of those, although I've learned a lot from attending Acton Institute's events because they do have that sort of Protestant and Calvinist. Um, I mean, I've learned a lot about spheres uh, of sovereignty and that sort of thing, but subsidiarity I know better. And it's essentially the idea, and this has been a teaching of the, of the popes for over 100 years, that um, institutions that are closer to the individual person and to the problems and, you know, the, that, that people face the institutions that are closer to those people should be the ones that try to solve them. And that institutions that are farther away um, should only step in when absolutely, you know, when absolutely necessary. So what that means is if there's a problem in my family, it's my job to try to solve that problem, to help my, the member of my family. If there's a problem in my immediate community, in my neighborhood, in my, my apartment building with one of my neighbors, it's my job to try to solve that problem or to band together with my neighbors and the other members of my community to solve that problem. If there's a problem in my city, we should be talking about you know, community level, city, civil society solutions, if possible. Um, if we feel like workers are being exploited, we should be thinking about, okay, is there a way that these workers can band together to advocate for their for their um, interests to, to negotiate with their employers, for example, um, but that we should not be looking to the state to step in and solve these problems. We should not be treating the state, I sometimes say people think of the, the law as a magic wand. You, you wave the magic wand, you pass a law, you've solved the problem. But that's not the way to go about trying to solve problems because the state, the you know, your local government is further away from you than your the member of your neighborhood. The state government is even further away. The federal government is even further than that, and therefore is is just less um, equipped to know what your actual needs are um, and the needs of the people in the community are. And so we should not be looking to the state, if at all possible, to solve problems. That 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 state again. I think the state does. I'm not an anarchist. I think the state does have a role in protecting our rights, but that most, the vast majority of problems should be solved at a lower level. So I've got an observation about this. Uh, Democratic Socialist Republic of California, home, hometown, right? However, I live in a county that is predominantly conservative. And the way that we're solving things like the support for military families who don't have enough money to make it, you know, till the next paycheck and need food or the way that we're solving problems with homelessness, uh, the state offers the money and you can get that. But what's happened contrary to the state sponsoring these things is that small groups have jumped up. Uh, nonprofits have started who coordinate local food drives so that they can offer military families food when they haven't got any and support with electricity bills and things like that. This is all just ground level stuff. The state doesn't touch that one. The state's involved with homelessness and that's totally messed up. <laughs> But when it comes to uh, children of folks who are coming across the border, separated from their parents, we've solved that one locally because families just want to help. So I, I see the, the intersection of virtue there working in what you're calling subsidiarity, which I love, by the way, great concept. I see it working. And the fact that you've identified that as a, as a way forward and as something that's been working is, is exciting to me. That, that's really good news, right? I'm glad to hear that you're seeing it working on the ground because one of the fears um, of of people like me is that, and that we that you know people that have come before before me for the last century um, is that 
when as government get, grows larger, it actually can crowd out those private solutions and those civil society institutions, those social institutions, community level institutions, churches, charities. It can crowd them out and it can essentially make them wither on the vine because it, it's taking all the resources and all. Um, and so that is a real problem. And, and trying to figure out how do we, and I think that's why so many people who are sort of of my political persuasion have often focused on, well, we got to fight big government. We got to advocate for a limited government. We got to try to roll back these intrusions in the economy and into people's lives, because unless we do that, these civil society institutions can't flourish. But one of the things I think a lot about, and I have been thinking a lot about recently, is you know the state is there, and we may or may not win those political battles, but we got to figure out how to revive civil society, whether or not the state is doing its best to crowd it out. We've got to figure out how to route around the state interventions, if possible, and, and solve those problems ourselves, as opposed to um, waiting for the perfect political moment or to have, you know, won the ultimate political battle before we try to solve problems at a lower level. Well, I think they're, the state's doing a, a good job of, of failing, right? They're doing, <laughs> they're breaking so many things and they're become, and they've disrupted trust so tremendously. And that's created uh, opportunities. People are starting to try to find better ways to get things done. A lot of parents, for example, sat and watched their kids on Zoom at school and said, this is what's going on all day and, and, and start, you know, I mean, we have, we've got record levels of people who've left the public school system uh, in a very short amount of time. So I, I think it's already beginning to happen. I want to segue into uh, fusion now, because I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this and the fact that you have uh, an expertise in this. And I think the place that we have to start, Stephanie, I think we have to get some history in here. Um, it's easy for me at my age to take for granted. I used to read national review in the library in high school when it was a paper magazine and everybody, that's how they, they consumed it. And I would be able to watch William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, do his show firing line. And, you know, I was a strange kid. Uh, those were the things I wanted to do at the time, but you know, that's a long time ago now. Uh, so I, I want to talk about national review first and who specifically was Frank Meyer. Uh, before we get too deeply into kind of being able to pull this apart, where do we come from on this subject? Great. And I would recommend, if you wouldn't mind sharing in, in your show notes as well, I have a long article from a few years ago called, Is There a Future for Fusionism? That gets into some of this. Um, but yeah, so basically after World War II, there was a, a moment in which a new conservative movement was emerging in the United States that was clearly different in many ways from conservatism as it had been understood in Europe. In Europe, you can you associate conservatism with a sort of throne and altar, the aristocracy, the monarchy, these institutions that had never been relevant in the U.S. And so, as the as in, in the post-war era, as this conservative movement was sort of coming into its own and was trying to understand what it stands for, there were all these debates over what does it mean to be a conservative in the American context, in the U.S. context. Um, and there were different camps. One of the camps was the more libertarian camp, right? Hayek and Friedman were, were participants in this debate and they were advocating for limited government and free markets and free trade. They were more libertarian. And there were also the more traditional conservatives like religious traditionalists, people like Russell Kirk and Robert Nisbet and many others um, who were saying, well, we, what we care about is tradition and religion and family values. And that's what it means to be a conservative. So not aristocracy or monarchy, but still, um, the transcendent things in that, you know, making sure that we are protecting the, our inheritance, um, the things that have been passed down to us from previous generations. Um, 
And again, the idea of uh, objective morality, that it's sort of the Judeo-Christian understanding of virtue. So you had this liber liber liberty camp and you had this virtue camp and they were debating and sort of vying for influence. Um, and then there was this guy named Frank Meyer, who was an editor at National Review um, from basically the beginning. National Review was founded in 1955 and Frank Meyer worked there from the beginning. Um, and he articulated what he believed was the correct synthesis of these two views. He basically said, neither side gets it completely right. We need both. That we have, as, as Americans, we have inherited both the classically liberal libertarian tradition and the sort of Judeo-Christian traditionalist religious tradition. And we they need each other. And America was founded on both these two pillars and it will collapse if we allow either pillar to collapse. So we must defend both liberty and virtue. And, and he argued for this synthesis. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it's not without its critics at, critics at the time, but it was actually quite remarkably successful at winning over and sort of becoming the sort of shared consensus of the conservative movement as we knew it in the 20th century in, in America again. Um, and so it was very successful for its time, this synthesis. It brought people like Russell Kirk and F.A. Hayek or Milton Friedman together under one umbrella. But it was not just, this is the really important thing I'm always trying to drive home. It was not just a coalition of different factions that were like willing to sit at the same table because they were all anti-communists. That's the way it's often discussed. But that is not correct. Frank Meyer believed that he was articulating a, a philosophical synthesis, not just building a coalition of different disparate groups. He was saying, if you're a libertarian, you should also care about virtue. And if you are a tr religious traditionalist, you should also care about liberty. Um, not just that you should be willing to work with people on the other side. But there was a motivation to, uh, I, I think, to say that the, the history or to maybe rewrite the history to be that this was about you know, an alliance, that a temporary alliance of convenience to fight communism. Like there's there's political actors that want to take advantage of that. Yeah. And it's actually I, I want to be clear that alliance was a real thing. So in addition to the philosophical debates about what is it that we stand for as conservatives, what is National Review all about, you know, where, in which Frank Meyer had this, this philosophical synthesis that he was articulating. There was also political elections happening. And there was also William F. Buckley Jr. who founded National Review, who was very much a coalition builder. He, he believed that he was bringing people in from these different camps in, in, under one sort of umbrella, the conservative movement. Um, and there were people who were saying, okay, well, we got to decide. You know, Nixon's not very conservative, but he's better than the alternative. So should we endorse him? Like, you know, what we really want is Barry Goldwater. What we really want is Ronald Reagan, but we can't get him this year. Maybe we'll get him next time around. There, there were, there was coalitions and being formed and there were, you know, political electioneering, electioneering happening. That was all happening at the same time. Um, and I think it's fair to say that one of the things that allowed all these disparate groups to come together and support somebody like Ronald Reagan was that they all had maybe different reasons for being very concerned about global communism, right? They, they were, there was this very strong anti-Soviet Union sentiment among both, among religious traditionalists, among libertarians for obvious reasons, and among people who were, had previously been on the left, who had in some cases previously been members of the Communist Party or sympathizers with communism, who saw it up close and went, this is evil, we have to stop this. And so they were willing to come together and form a coalition that did happen. But that is a little bit different from what is what the word fusionism actually was coined to describe, which was this this philosophical synthesis that Frank Meyer hoped would allow these different groups to not just be again not just be willing to work together, but actually realize that they had the same 
goals and interests. Are you, uh, I don't want to mean to put you on the spot, but are you friends with or a fan of Jeffrey Tucker's work at all? I know it somewhat, but I haven't kept up with it lately. Okay. So, because he wrote an article, um, that when he first wrote it, um, almost everybody I knew went, Oh, this is the greatest article that's been written in the history of libertarianism. And my reaction was completely the opposite. And then I, you know, as I was putting together and preparing for this show, I began to realize that there's a way in which my program has been going about addressing that column. This is like maybe deep and I'm, I'm like on the couch right now and I'm getting psychoanalyzed. And that article was dividing between thick and thin libertarianism. So thick libertarianism is is the idea that there's some other additional packaging that comes along with the with the political uh, uh, aspect of it. That would be the thin part. So in the thin part, we celebrate the fact that lots of people with lots of different cultural things, and we've already done a little bit in the conversation we have, uh, you know, that the pastor and the pornographer, for example, can sit in the same, you know, row and have a great conversation in a libertarian event and exchange ideas and, and learn from one another um, and and have a conversation and they're free to leave and, and pursue uh, their vision of happiness in, in, a, in a thin sense. But then in a thick sense, there's maybe these cultural things that are supposed to attach to this as well. And there's kind of a division between this and then, you know, he thin was clearly being disparaged in the, that's why he chose the labeling that he chose. And a lot of people have saluted that that particular column. I'd like to get your take on the thick versus thin debate. I also have a long article from Reason from a few years ago on this topic. It was called Two Libertarianisms. Um, and I like I, I think that thick versus thin is an that was a really interesting distinction, but I um, prefer thinking in terms of political libertarianism versus a sort of more comprehensive libertarianism. Do you think that the libertarian philosophy is something that merely tells us what the proper role of the state is in society? Or do you think it tells us something more comprehensive about what the good life looks like and how we should be living even in our private capacity? Um, so comprehensive versus political. I am very much a political libertarian. I'm not a comprehensive libertarian. I think that liberty is the highest value when it comes to the proper role of the state in society, it is to protect our rights and liberties. But I do not think that liberty is the highest value in life more broadly. I think that virtue, this is what makes me a fusionist, virtue is actually the point of, of you know, the point of liberty is to then use that liberty to pursue virtue. Um, so I, when I'm, when, again, if we think, if we use the fusionist distinction between the governmental sphere and the non-governmental sphere, um, when you step outside of the governmental sphere into the private sphere or the non-governmental sphere, I think liberty is one value among many, and it is not the highest value. And many, okay. many, you know, in many cases, there are things that are much more important in our private lives. So I guess where where I struggle with this is that um, I recognize everything that you're saying and celebrate the political aspect of it. And we, in talking about grace, routinely talk about uh, we have a metaphor that we use here about sitting down and having lemonade with someone with whom you disagree, right? So the mar the Nazis are marching down the street in Skokie and they go right past your house. And, you know, why don't you invite one or two of them up on the steps and ask, start asking them questions, a la Daryl Davis, who would do that and has managed to get people to leave, you know, the clan and so forth. Like the ability to, to begin hearing somebody as a real human being who's made in the image of God. And then I start to realize that the only way that, that you can get to that, or let's, let's, let me say the only way, the ideal or best way to get to that is if you were trying to imitate Jesus. This is this is basically the the taking up the cross type of, of metaphor. It's viewing uh, every human being as unique and special in the image of God. It's a very spiritual way of going about this. And that turns out to be kind of thick in its own way, right? 
uh, if you give people the ability to go out and make mistakes, that's how they find virtue. Virtue isn't something that's coerced. So it, it's hard to understand how we could even arrive at virtue if we haven't, if we don't have the ability to not be virtuous. Like it's that contrast uh, that we have, and it's the ability to experiment uh, personally and socially uh, to figure out how to achieve that and to continue to test what, what's been handed down to us. Because sometimes we find that what's been handed down to us in the past, just because it's tradition, wasn't necessarily right or wasn't necessarily good. Uh, so to me, I, 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 I think that there's like this game that people like to play where they like to split things up and say, well, I'm of this group and you're of that group. You know, I'm, I'm in the Judeans people's front and you're in the people's front of Judea, you splitters. And, and, and then they kind of lose the plot. Um, my thin libertarianism, my political libertarianism is an outgrowth of a thick libertarianism. Uh, but it's thick in the sense that I've, I recognize anytime you coerce, harm another person, you diminish their happiness, harmony, and prosperity. And that turns out that applies politically as well. And so, I, you know, if you want to go out and do something that I think might be a mistake, I don't feel like I have the ability to coerce you as long as you're not hurting anybody else as you get there. Yeah, and I'm not uh, in favor of coercing people either, even in some sort of private way, right? Even if we're talking about the non-governmental sphere, right? Like, I, I obviously don't think it's okay for me to go up to somebody who's about to make a bad choice and put a gun to their head and say, I won't let you do that. That's mm -hmm. that's not what I'm in favor of. But what I would say is, like, fusionism is a very thick philosophy. I would say it is essentially th the thin libertarianism or the political libertarianism with a whole additional thick layer on top, which says we also have to care about virtue. We also have to respect the idea of transcendent truth and objective morality and the inheritance of you know, what has come to us from through the Judeo-Christian tradition, that that is what takes something that is thin, which is a mere political libertarianism, and turns it into something thick, which is fusionism, which is more of a life philosophy, which sort of tells us something about how to live in addition to just what kind of state to want. So I, I hear echoes in what you're saying of something that I heard very clearly when I was at the Acton um, Academy uh, the last few years, and that is the liberty that we're given is the liberty to do right. But I, I, I automatically wonder when I hear something like that is who determines what is right? Well, I mean, okay, I would say two things. One is I believe that we all have the right to follow our conscience, right? Right up until the point where, where we are actually evading somebody else's, aggressing against somebody else, right? Um, violating someone else's rights. Um, so so I'm, not, I'm not arguing that like, um, somebody else should get to tell you and force you to adopt their understanding of right and wrong. Um, I think our conscience is the, is ultimately must be our guide. Um, however, that's different from saying, I don't believe that there is such a thing as objective morality or objective truth, that there is such a thing as right and wrong and sort of capital you know, G good and capital E evil or, or that sort of thing. Um, I do. I think that our, our, our you know, ultimately, a good life is one in which we have correctly identified the good and are oriented toward it and are moving toward it and are trying to achieve it. Um, and if we have incorrectly identified what the good is, if we are pursuing the wrong things, we're not going to end up with a very good or virtuous life. That doesn't mean I think that somebody should be able to come in and coerce us into doing something different. But um, I don't, I, I'm very much not a relativist. I don't think it's like every, um, every person's understanding of right and wrong is equally valid. I think there is such a thing as truth when it comes to obje you know, transcending objective morality. But we do have to let people learn by doing. And sometimes that's painful when those people are in power. 
when people are in power, especially when they have control of the state, right, the reins, the sort of coercive power of the state, that complicates this because now they are using coercion potentially against people. Um, and so I, I'm strongly opposed to, in, in the vast majority of cases, um, I, I'm obviously not opposed to having a state that, say, punishes murderers. But I think that the reason for that is because we believe that the right to life is one that the state has a role in protecting. And not so much because I think that the state's job is to teach people that murder is wrong. I think we should teach that to our children. We should teach that, you know, we should we should have that be an important part of our cultural culture. Um, but that when we empower the state to decide what is good and bad beyond just, you know, having its job be protecting rights, um, but that's very, very dangerous. I'm very, I'm very uncomfortable with going down that road, even a little ways. And, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, sometimes libertarians are made fun of because we don't like, you know, government schools. We, we think that all education should be privatized, right? It's like, well, it's because in schools, you do have to figure, you do have to pass on, decide what values are you going to pass on to the next generation. You are going to be in the business necessarily of instilling or inculcating values or an understanding of, of morality. And so, the idea of having the government be involved in that at all makes me nervous. Uh, okay, so that, the libertarian por portion of this uh, discussion is maybe a bit more of a niche concern and uh, obviously the one that I think everybody here uh, cares the most about. But uh, let's get back to fusionism kind of more broadly. Um, I'm a Reagan kid. I mean, I grew up in that era. My dad was a Reagan voter. Uh, I didn't get to vote for Reagan. I was just barely uh, young enough that I missed that opportunity. Uh, but... Uh, he said things like government is the problem or, you know, the worst news you could get is that, uh, you know, some is, uh, a is someone from the government at your door saying I'm here to help. It, it, there was a, a sense he, he even said in like 1979 or 80 that libertarianism was the heart of conservatism. And there's a famous clip uh, of a debate uh, between George W. Bush, who was running against him at the time and ended up be joining the, and, and they formed a uh, presidential ticket in 1980. But while they're both campaigning, there's the two men are debating and they're asked a question about immigration. And uh, um, George W. Bush, I'm sorry, George H.W. Bush wanted a open, uh, wanted policy that would allow people to come into the country, thought immigrants were beneficial, spoke up for the value and virtue of immigrants. And then Ronald Reagan tried to top him by saying he was for open borders. Things have changed an awful lot, haven't they? Yes, that is definitely true. Um, I, I I love there's a, a famous quote from a Reagan speech where he talks about how you know we are the shining city on the hill, and if this if the hill has to if the city has to have walls, then I want it to have big doors as well. In other words, that we should be welcoming to people. That that was a really strong part of the Reagan ethos was a sort of optimistic and welcoming and inclusive approach to politics, which is very, very different from where the, the sort of conservative movement, the Republican Party has been in the last few years. I think there has been um, a real erosion of that. And, and so, I mean, there can be debates over whether um, facts on the ground have disproved that, I guess. Um, you might say, well, we don't like the culture that is being formed with all these people who speak Spanish living in our country or something. And so we have a right to close that door, um, close the border. But um, as a general matter, um, Reagan Reagan was very much a fusionist. In fact, he gave a speech shortly after he was elected, I think, where he actually said um, Frank Meyer, who was the you know godfather of fusionism, had passed away by then. 
but Reagan and most people today have never heard of Frank Meyer. But Reagan called, you know, in the speech said Frank Meyer, what I believe is what he argued for, which was fusionism. Okay, but clearly something's happened. And I, I don't is it is it 9-11? Uh, is it the financial meltdown that we had in 2008? Is it some other factor? Is it uh, social media? What is it that suddenly has people? Is it the end of the Cold War? And it's just taken this long to arrive at our doorstep that has caused uh, some real shifts. Let me just lay out a couple of them. It, it was uh, understood across the board. In fact, this was every economist agreed with this idea. It was like gravity that free trade was good for the for the for everyone. It would benefit everyone. That's coming under question. Uh, there were people on the left that questioned that all along, but now it's uh, being questioned on the right. And there's new there's guys showing up like Orrin Cass that are trying to uh, give uh, try to design some kind of economics that will kind of justify this position. They don't do a very good job, in my opinion. Uh, they cheat by picking start and ending dates for these things. But uh, free trade is is on the block. Uh, industrial policy. The, the, the notion that we need to go back to kind of an FDR sense of the world is now being discussed openly amongst people who are uh, Republican. Uh, tough on crime. Uh, you know, just in, as recently as 2018 and 19, we were already seeing significant progress have been made about dealing with some of the problems that we have in criminal justice uh, involving the war on drugs, involving the sentencing, uh, uh, the way the sentencing was conducted and so on. And all of that all of a sudden seems to have rubber band back really good and hard. Uh, Trump is is very much and the people of his ilk are very much kind of in a Nixonian state of mind there. Immigration. Uh, the idea that that Ronald Reagan would have put forward and that I think you and I would put forward because we believe that every human being is made in the image of God and that their rights are given by the creator, not by the state, should be able to choose where they want to live and how they want to live, uh, who they want to live with and and so forth. And people should be able to make those relationships And all these things right now, and especially immigration, I would say, are on the chopping block on, and, and conservatism. What happened? Where did it go wrong? The first thing I want to say is that although I agree with everything, you know, your characterization of the changes that we have seen, um, I often refer to this as the liberalism schism. And I think it is very important to re remember that it is a schism where there are two sides, even on the right of center, in, you know, broadly what would have previously been considered to be like the libertarians and conservatives all together on the right of center. Um, there are plenty of people who still identify as classically liberal, who still think trade is good, who are not anti-immigrant. Um, that, that who want limited government. But what it, what has changed is that there has been this opening up of the schism where there's now a whole bunch of people on the other side who are saying things like, you know, we tried your limited government and we don't really like where it's gotten us. And so what we think we want, what conservatives need to do is to embrace a muscular state and be willing to wield state power in order to impose our values on society. Because the left is willing to do that. We know that the left has no qualms about using state power to impose its values on us. And so we have to be willing to fight fire with fire. That's the kind of things that they're saying. And so I think a lot of this is, um, it's reactionary. It's a backlash against very um, bad choices, poor choices, the illiberalism and extremism of the left, where the further they go in pushing, trying to sort of essentially force their views down everyone else's throat, especially using coercive power, um, the more, the less willing people on the right are to say, well, we can just battle this out as a battle of ideas. You know, the marketplace of ideas will sort it out. And they're saying, no, they're coming for us. They're trying to force their way of life on us. They are, you know, they, they hate us and they, they want to, you know, 
make it illegal to believe what we believe or to live out our faith the way we want to live it out or whatever. And so we are going to we are going to come we're going to respond in kind. And that means being willing to use state power against But them. but that means that there's a constant escalation like in a war yes, sense, right? Yeah. Everybody's always upping the ante. So we don't call ourselves grace archy on accident because it's just, this is the very phenomenon we're looking to address is like, let's, how do we go back down? How do we de-escalate? Um, and we think the very first thing that has to happen is people have to listen uh, and they have to listen to a steel man argument. Because I noticed that in, even in these arguments you're talking about, uh, people have a tendency in the political sense to straw man one another, right? They pick the worst argument and set that one on fire and go, look at, I defeated this argument when they're not really addressing the real felt concerns uh, that are going on there. And they're turning to a coercive tool to kind of force everybody to accept uh, their way of life. That's right. And I, I am I am very concerned by the current state of our politics. I think that the article I wrote that you mentioned earlier called The Authoritarian Convergence was about how on both the far left and the far right, they're starting to resemble each other more and more in terms of the far right embracing leftist economic policy. So on something as concrete as actual policy, um, you know, industrial policy and that sort of thing, anti-trade, uh, pro-tariffs, all of that. Um, but also in terms of like just uh, an erosion of support for First Amendment, like free speech and religious liberty on both the left and the right, you're hearing this. And in terms of the rhetoric they're using to dis discuss these political battles, it's about politics as a war, total war politics, I called it in, in the article, where it's we must, or I've also referred to it as sort of Game of Thrones approach to politics, because it's um, politics is a war in which you win or you die. That's a famous line from Game of Thrones. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And they seem to think that we live in a world in which if we lose the next election, we, we will actually be destroyed. Our, our side will no longer be allowed to exist by the other side. Therefore, we must do whatever it takes to defeat them. Anything goes at that point. If your life is on the line, um, if you sort of buy into this, into this way of thinking about politics, though I have responded by noting that if you're a Christian, in fact, even dying is not the worst thing, right, for us. We know that there are worse things and selling out your principles are actually worse. It would be, it's much better from a Christian perspective to be the one on the receiving end of persecution than to be the one carrying out that persecution. Amen. Or that Amen. 100%. Amen. Um, okay. But there's also the historical argument to be made. And, that, and so... <laughs> My son was hearing, I was, Bill, I'm going through one of the shows and I'm making some show notes and he hears in the background, this typical mockery that I do where something happened a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And I'll say something like, oh, it may be hard to remember. We were oh so young then. And I do this trope. I do this thing because people have such incredibly short memories. I mean, like you turn on the TV and they go, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that ever happened. You see what just happened is the worst thing that ever happened. We've got to do something about this. We've got to do something about this. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This same thing happened here. Right. Yeah. And we all survived. And uh, I, I would do a radio show every Thursday, typically every Thursday with the host and the angriest caller we ever received uh, happened right before the 2018 elections. There was a, a band of, of migrants coming up through Central America and Mexico that were going to arrive at our border conveniently two weeks after the election was over. And the only hope was to, you know, was for everybody to get out and vote Republican because that's, you know, the way maybe we could even shoot them when they get to the border. I mean, it was some really hyperbolic language that was being exercised in that October. And I said, when that day comes in two weeks after the election, when Thanksgiving's rolling around, 
no one's going to be talking about the story. It'll be completely gone from the headlines. I know that because I've seen this kind of thing every election. This is, this is, you know, you're getting, everybody's getting stirred up. That's the purpose of this. So I, I, I guess one of the things I appreciate about your work, Stephanie, is like you bring up somebody like Frank Meyer, who's an important thinker uh, in what ended up actually kind of becoming the historical construct, namely Ronald Reagan, right? And 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 the and the way that the party was was approaching things at that time, it's not a Reagan-esque party at this point, uh, at this juncture. And they're still borrowing on that credibility, but it's not the same guy. It's not the same party. It's not the same approach. Uh, he it definitely is not the same rhetoric and and principles. Uh, so I, speak just a bit more to the history here uh, that we're going through. I really kind of want to understand, like, have we been here before? Um, and is there a way out? Great question. I mean, again, I want to make sure that I'm in the spirit of this podcast, tempering my warning. So I'm concerned about the current state of our politics, but I also always try to keep things in perspective. And part of that is looking at is remembering, for example, that although I feel like the far left and the far right are becoming more and more extreme and they're sort of empowering each other, because when one moves further to one side, it then sparks the other side to be more extreme. Um, I write a lot about that. In fact, the far left and the far right are themselves relatively small cohorts, and the vast majority of Americans are in the middle. And so sometimes you'll hear things like, wow, the number of Americans, people will talk about what's called affective polarization, which is this idea that we hate each other more. People on the other side, we hate, we feel more negative towards them than we used to. And that's true. Um, and there's poll questions like um, the number of people who say they would be really upset if their child married somebody from the other party um, has tripled in the last 10 years or something. That, that might not be exactly right, but it's something like that. It's tripled. The number of people who say they would be very upset if their child married somebody from the opposite political party has tripled. But it's tripled from like 4% to 15% or something, right? It's actually still relatively uncommon to care that much about politics. And that's where I try, that's one of the things I try to keep in mind and keep perspective on is that most Americans are not living and breathing this idea of politics as total war. Um, I worry that it's moving in that direction. And when, when you have 15% of people, that's worse than when you have 5% of people. Um, but, but that's, that's something. So like, we're still not, I think all the way at the crisis point. Um, there are warning signs, but it's not like a thing that I'm going to, again, I just really think anybody who tells you that like, it all comes down to the outcome of this next election, um, they're they're selling you something, right? And, and, yes, and we, yes. we should not be buying. We should not yes. be buying what they're selling. And, and, and by the way, for whatever it's worth, they say it every four years. Every four <laughs> years is the most important election in a generation. Completely redefining the term generation to mean simply it's the most election, most important election in the last three and a half years. And I, um, I am not a Trump fan um, at all, but I think that the left has really hurt itself. There's a boy who cried wolf problem where oh, yeah. when you go back and read the things they wrote about Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush. The yeah. compassionate conservative George W. Bush, they considered all these people to be fascists and war criminals, right? And it's like, you really cannot do that every four years and expect to still be taken seriously. And if somebody comes along who really is outside the norms, and maybe really we really should be nervous about, um, it's a lot harder to get people to take you seriously when you say that, if you have been saying that about everybody who came. When Mitt Romney was like the worst thing that has ever happened to American politics, then you know, people just, they stop, they stop listening. Right. I agree with that. And I think there has been a backfire effect here of late, uh, you know, I, to the point that uh, Donald Trump could probably uh, uh, get a, a jumpsuit to match his complexion. And he'd probably still, uh, he'd probably still win at this point. 
uh, the way things are going. That's how much I think they've pushed it. But, you know, it's interesting in the most recent article that you wrote for the March 2024 issue of Reason, um, you you touch on the fact that this realignment issue isn't just inside the libertarian and right side. There, This reorientation is happening is now impacting uh, the political left as well. Uh, there were people, um, you, you, you cited a couple of authors who had written about how this was hopeful initially, and they're now starting to kind of backpedal themselves. They're kind of concerned what is happening to them that is driving people uh, maybe in towards the Republican Party right now, people who were potentially maybe more labor uh, oriented. This is exactly right. So this is the idea of a political realignment. I was skeptical that we were undergoing a political realignment, um, but I looked into it and I convinced myself that it is happening. Um, basically, the, the, the stereotypes associated with the Republican and Democratic parties of 20 or 30 years ago were that, you know, country club Republicans, right? People who were business owners or who were wealthier were Republicans. People who were highly educated, more sophisticated were Republicans. And people who were working class, blue collar workers, maybe union members, they were Democrats. Like people who didn't, hadn't gone to college, didn't have a college degree, were Democrats. This has completely reversed in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, where now people who have a college degree are far more likely to vote Democrat. And people who don't have a college degree, especially um, white working class, but even if you uh, broaden it to all races, those without a college degree are more likely to vote Republican, have been in the last several presidential elections. Um, and this also sort of carries with it some some racial changes too. So you, you, we used, they used to think that the multi-ethnic party was the Democratic Party, that immigrants voted Democrat. But in the last few elections, we have seen swings towards, not, not um, all the way towards Republicans, but in the direction away from being such overwhelming majorities for Democrats and much more towards voting for Republicans. And this includes, I mean, this is primarily we're talking about voting for Donald Trump in 2020. Um, Donald Trump, who was considered to be racist and who was considered to be bigoted and who wanted to close the border and who wanted to not let Muslims come here. And so this question of like, what the heck is happening here, that minority voters are moving in the direction of this guy who seems to hate them or who everybody, you know, everybody at least um, believes is hostile to having more immigrants come and that sort of thing. Um, and the explanation that most people, I think, who look into this closely arrive at, which I absolutely agree with, is that it has nothing to do with economics and everything to do with cultural radicalism on the left, the sort of woke identity politics extremism that the Democratic Party has really gone all in on in recent years, such that even somebody like Barack Obama in 2008 would be considered an incredible radical, uh, uh, moderate, squishy moderate compared to the Democrats today. Um, that, that this idea that we need to be pushing trans ideology in our schools and that if you don't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding, you're, you're a bigot who should be run out of the marketplace. And, and all this stuff, this idea that, that the Democratic Party is beholden to such extreme cultural, specifically cultural views, that they consider any traditionalist Christian to be a bigot, you know, white men to all be racist and sexist. Like, this is creating a backlash, an identity-based and cultural backlash. Um, that they think that abortion should be legal all the way up until the moment of birth, right? This sort of thing. It's not that they're in favor of gay marriage, but it's that they're in favor of forcing their views on LGBT issues on everyone else and not allowing there to be a place in society for anyone who disagrees. It's this radical, militant, what is often called woke or identity politics, um, 
turn that the Democratic Party has taken that is driving people, especially less educated people, who tend to be a little more socially conservative, who tend to not be as you know, extreme on these social issues, cultural issues, they're driving them out of the Democratic Party. And they're saying, <clears throat> I'm with whoever is going to fight against this craziness, because this is insane. And I, I can't get behind it. So the idea is that a realignment is happening. Um, but that it is actually not a lot of people think it's about economic issues. A lot of people on the right have made this argument that it was people like Orrin Cass, who you were talking about earlier, said, oh, they're coming over to the Republican Party because Trump was, you know, not free trade. And it's like, you look at the data, it suggests that the, that it was culture that was driving this realignment. Okay. So um, in your, again, in your, referring back to your March 2024 uh, article, Can Free Market, uh, Free Markets Win Votes in the New GOP, uh, you include something that is kind of, it, it's upside down as far as I'm concerned, but it's a chart. And in the bottom right-hand corner is the kind of the most libertarian uh, position on there. But it's got access points, just like David Nolan's chart does, uh, which is famously used by the advocates for self-government in their world's smallest political quid. And a lot of other quizzes use it too, and some of them orient it differently, but they set it up in my favorite way, which is a diamond chart. So David Nolan wrote an article in uh, that was published in January of 1971 called Classifying and Analyzing Politico-Economic Systems. And he was basically saying there is, uh, you know, most people are familiar with the left and right, and that kind of divides people on certain questions, right? One's a little more, the right's more conservative and the left's more progressive or liberal. Um, but it doesn't really explain a lot about how they view the role of government in these things. It has a lot to do maybe with their values but it, and what they think is a priority, but not necessarily how much government they believe. So he proposed that there needed to be a second line that was kind of up and down, and that would measure how much government. Uh, they believe needed to uh, to be used to address uh, the various social matters that they cared the most about or how little government should be used in those areas that they wanted uh, freedom. And so then that that would he get, they came later people like instantly kind of organically people began doing quizzes on this thing and they started plotting people because he proposed that that's what could be done and it and it finally got standardized by the advocates for self-government but as i said others have done this too and i couldn't help noticing that in the chart that appears in your article you use there is a social identity dim dimension and an economic dimension these are two different lines in the chart uh to get to that point um i i'm bringing this up to say we we have a challenge here because we've looked at some of the questions you already brought one of them up you brought up free speech Free speech doesn't tend to be predictive anymore. There's been a significant shift. This was previously considered an issue of the left. Now it's on the right, and they're virtually on par, according to the advocates' research. And you know, they have people taking the quiz. It's not predictive anymore of being on this political left. Likewise, immigration. Um, this they're shifting on that so that that doesn't predict libertarianism anymore. Um, uh, trade is uh, uh, trade issues uh, are less predictive, and social security are less predictive on the right uh, than they were. Uh, and that leads me to believe, Stephanie, that we are in a different era. And here's the, what I'm going to posit, and then I'm going to let you shoot me down or, or and set me straight. Um, I believe that what David Nolan was talking about in 1971 was basically the Cold War consensus, or not Cold War, the, the post-World War II consensus, because even after the Cold War ended in 1991, this was how everybody was operating. When the election happened with Mitt Romney, running against Barack Obama, this was exactly how people still basically were thinking. Uh, there might have been some evidence of fraying at the edges with candidacies like uh, Ron Paul's and Bernie Sanders in the mix, but most of the way, this is how people were thinking. 
but then a man came down an escalator uh, and in 2015 and announced he was running for president. And suddenly everything seems to have changed. And somewhere between then and, and you know, the last year or two, we're in a we're in a different dimension. We're not in that same era anymore. There has been a, a realignment in the definition of what conservative and liberal mean. And it really calls into question all the questions that we're asking on that quiz. Like, are do we have to look at is it is it really a social and economic question anymore that really divides these two uh, these two wings? Yeah, I, that's I think really important. I, I the amazing contribution that the Nolan chart makes is by adding that second axis and recognizing that left versus right only is not going to capture everything it needs to capture and that you need to have what, what he suggested is that it, we should introduce this sort of authoritarian versus uh, libertarian axis, like more government versus less government. He used different language for that, but um, because you can have a left-wing authoritarian or right-wing authoritarian, and they're different. They're not identical in, ter in terms of how they want to use government, but they share that a desire to use government to get their way. Um, and so having that second access really adds something to the picture. Um, the chart that I, I reproduce in my article is a different take on this. Instead of having the sort of liberal, uh, libertarian, authoritarian access, it just breaks out, um, yeah, again, economic issues on one axis and sort of social cultural issues on another access, axis. Um, but I point out, I only mentioned this in passing in the article, but it gets getting at what, you're, what you've been talking about, which is that even that attempt to break things out, you know, with where you have economics on one and cultural issues on the other to try to get, be a little more granular in how you're, you're, you're classifying people, um, it ends up failing in many ways to capture the things that people actually, that actually differentiates one group from another, especially when you're trying to capture libertarians, because the kind of thing that differentiates somebody on the left, uh, a sort of traditional leftist from a traditional conservative, isn't necessarily the same thing that, uh, that a libertarian, so it, you know, the, the shorthand is a libertarian is socially liberal, fiscally or economically conservative. Um, but in fact, there are many ways in which libertarians are not socially liberal if socially liberal is you know um banning big gulps in new york city or something right mm -hmm. we're not in favor of that um and if if uh if if it means to be fiscally conservative means to want to i don't know like one of the questions had something to do with do you think that the that the economic system is rigged in favor of the rich and powerful and it's like if you answer yes to that question it puts you on the left it says that you're a leftist. You think that the economic system is rigged, then you're a leftist, right? Well, libertarians who care a lot about crony capitalism and battling crony capitalism and keeping government from choosing winners and losers also might answer yes to that question. So then it doesn't care, it doesn't cl correctly classify us as being, uh, you know, economically on the right and and, and um, socially on the left. In fact, what ends up happening is that there it looks like the, that quadrant that should have libertarians in it is completely empty almost, um, because because it's not correctly capturing us. So it's it's very hard. And then that all of that was still, I think, going off of questions that were an old fashioned, ten years ago or more, understanding of what left versus right is, especially on something like economics. So that if you believe in trade, it would say you're right wing, you're on the right. And if you're anti-trade, you're on the left. But today, the people who are on the far right are anti-trade. So they're left-wing economically. So how do we, it's very, very hard to classify people according to their issue positions, or even at this point, I think according to, going back to the Nolan chart on the authoritarian sort of um, libertarian um, axis spectrum, 
because it seems like what's going on is entirely about people just identifying with one identity cohort, you know, us versus them. These are my people and we're against those people. We want our people to be in power and we're opposed to those people having power. It's not really about issues, unfortunately, anymore. Oh, I was going to say, what, what if we had a chart that somehow measured virtue versus how we feel about government? So if, if I were going to be trying to do a definition of what it means to be a fusionist, right, it would be, and I actually drew this, this four quadrants once to, to make the point of what fusionism is to my boss when I was writing my article on fusionism. I said, well, a fusionist is somebody who is in favor of limited government and traditional virtue. Um, if you're in favor of limited government, but you're not in favor of traditional virtue, then you're sort of, um, you know, you're, you're like an old school um, libertarian, libertine libertarian kind of. And if you're in favor of individual virtue, but you're not in favor of limited government, then you're kind of an authoritarian conservative, like a big government conservative, right? So you can end up with these different, um, you can end up with four different quadrants. And one of them will be the fusionist quadrant, where you want limited government, but you think that limited government needs to be married to, fused with a culture, a virtuous culture. Um, that is one way to do it. Um, but I don't know that it necessarily would do a good job of capturing the full spectrum of people left, right, and center in a country like this one. Because so many people these days are not thinking in terms of virtue, right? They're just, that's just not, that's like feels very passe to many people. So I, I, I'm thinking this might be my final question for you, Stephanie, but it requires a bit of setup. Then I want to come back to David Nolan's idea in 1971. So at the bottom of the, the chart, you know, kind of home played out, you've got on your left side, am I doing the list? This would be the left for everybody. On the left side, you have social issues. And on the, the right side, you have economic or fiscal issues. And under Nolan's approach, and then like when you're attempting to write up the questions that would go, there are on the world's smallest political quiz, there are five questions on each side. And each of those questions has to accomplish three things. They basically have to identify a agreement with an economic position on the right or an agreement with the a social position on the left. They have to resist the other side. So if you're on the left, you would say no, you would disagree with the question and vice versa. And then finally, agreement should also drive you up towards limited government, uh, libertarianism. And if you end up like on both sides, socially and fiscally saying, I don't want government involved in these questions. You go all the way to the top. If you say, I want everybody, I want government involved in every single one of these social and, and fiscal questions, you would go to the bottom. So you think about this, the, writing up these questions, you know, the, the sim simple shorthand was, and it was very simple. It was remarkably simple. The question, the, the quiz got standardized in the late eighties, like 1986, 87 timeframe, 88, somewhere in there. I think it was 1988. It got standardized. Uh, by Marshall Fritz and a group of his friends uh, that he consulted with. And they did tests and different stuff and they send, standard it, standardized it. Then in the early 2000s, uh, they did a review and they only modified a couple of questions. They didn't pull or remove any questions. The The theory was still holding. It still was still highly predictive of where people were at in the political map. Um, but we did, we actually replaced three questions in 2020 um, I didn't just simply update, but we replaced three questions. And one of those has been a disaster. It's failed completely in terms, but it's, it, I see that there's kind of this, this shuffling now. And so I'm saying all of this to boil down to this point, 
the simple back uh, back of the hand math that you would do to say, oh, this is an economic question, no longer predicts conservative and libertarian necessarily. The simple back of the hand social question definitely doesn't uh, predict uh, on the left very well. Um, it's become much more complex than that. So I'm going to ask an incredibly hard question now uh, with all that background. And that is, what are the dividing lines? How do you say now that someone is a conservative, someone is a progressive, you're, you have a chance to be the, the David Nolan of 2024. You're going to be able to redesign the theory. What is the new era's theory? I wish I had a ready-made answer to that question. Um, I, that's, why, I, that's why we're in final jeopardy right now. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, in... in yeah, I mean, one of the problems I think actually with, um, again, I, lo I love the Nolan chart. I think it was such a huge leap forward for helping to understand, you know, refine our understanding of what's going on. Um, but one of the things he did is he actually considered um, social issues and economic issues to be perfectly trading off so that like far right meant you care a lot about free markets and not a lot about economic liberty and far left meant the opposite. You care a lot about uh, freedom like in social on social issues and not at all about economic liberty. But what we're seeing now is a cohort on the right who is not really in favor of economic liberty and not really in favor of social liberty either, right? Like they, they can move together. And in many ways, depending on like which issues you choose, folks on the left are, are they're certainly not in favor of economic liberty in many ways, um, in most cases, but also Although they want everybody to be able to sleep with whoever they want and you know have whatever lifestyle choices they want, they also want government to be involved in many social questions too, yep. right? Again, yep. they want to they want the state to have something to say about whether you are allowed to live out your faith in these various ways. Yeah, and by the way, you could see this in in um, a host of of people who just in the last two to three years have have were who are definitely on the left. Glenn Greenwald, um, uh, Matt Taibbi. You know, there's these these characters now that are beginning to show up. Bill Maher, even to some degree, who's still saying I identify with the left, but they're like, you guys are insane, and 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 they're kind of these what I call old fashioned liberals. I'm not sure that they that many of them existed even anymore, but they were this idea that they they would have fit that Nolan Chart division pretty well. Um, but they're on the basis of cultural issues. There there's definitely a lean right. I mean, Matt Taibbi even says he's crossed the line. Yeah, yeah. I I don't. I don't have a good answer to this because it also depends whether you're talking more about sort of cultural figures and and um, influencers, right? Thought leaders, intellectuals, writers, people on TV, um, or if you're talking about base voters, because it seems very clear to me that what's what's going on with base voters is something very different than what's going on with um, folks like Matt Taibbi. But 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 I guess. You know, a thing that I have that I wrote in my big piece on the realignment and that I have I do believe is that it is these cultural and identity questions where the extremism on the left has pushed out many, many like what, you know, blue collar voters out of the Republic, out of the Democratic coalition into the Republican coalition, because they're like, if you're going to tell me that my kids have to sh have to like my daughter has to compete on the same sports team as a, with a biological boy, like I'm going to have something to say about that. Like I, I'm not, I'm not going to keep voting for you just because I think that like, I agree with your tax policy more or something. They, they care about those cultural issues more. So it's pushed these folks to the right. And it also, in some ways, the, the lack of um, the extremism, the sort of cancel culture stuff is what's pushed some of these 
what would have been more left-wing influence, influencer types like Taibi or, or Bill Maher or whatever out of the coalition also. It's like, well, you used to be classically liberal in some sense, liberal in sense of in the sense of believing in individual liberty and free speech and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. wanting to like coexist peacefully with people even if you don't agree with them. And now you want, there's this like desire to militantly impose your way of life on everyone. Um, and and the, so it's there's there's like the people who are not okay with one, with either side imposing their life the way of life militantly on everyone, and then it's people on the left who want to what we understand we understand as being on the left even though we can't tell you what set of issues puts you on the left but we understand there's a difference between being on the left and being on the right. There's people on the left that want to militantly impose their way of life. There's people on the right who want to militantly impose their way of life, and then there's people like me, probably on the right but doesn't, don't want to militantly impose my way of life. So there really are still four, four, um, four quadrants. And I think the, the authoritarian liberal axis still gives us a lot of information now that I think about it, but it's that left versus right. We're having a really hard time. We can see that there's a difference, but we cannot figure out what are the issues, what are the actual political issues. It's, it's harder to like, to wrap them up into a neat bow and say, these are the issues that tell, that tell me that you're a right winger versus a left winger. It's certainly not going to be economics. It's not going to do it. Uh, Stephanie Slade, thank you for being on Grace Archie and sharing your thoughts. And we will include uh, your articles uh, down in the show notes. Uh, I, I, I want to close out, Bill, on this, this thought that uh, Stephanie brought up uh, a few minutes back about the idea how these, the extremes are small. They're kind of loud and they're more like each other. And I, I'm, I'm, afraid that too often that's what's driving what we think is happening and we're maybe not aware of the full picture. I mean, we talk about history here, we talk about grace here, but, you know, maybe the grace point that we, you know, close out on here today is a recognition that these large shouting uh, groups are minorities. Uh, They're driving a lot of the media coverage. They're driving a lot of the adrenaline and fear that is a part of our politics uh, they're not driving us necessarily towards harmony, and they're probably not really truly representative of the big picture. And maybe one way that we could find peace and be a little bit more graceful in how we approach politics would be to simply recognize that really true fact that the extremes uh, should not define uh, the rest of us. <laughs>